This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here alone to introduce two interviews that my colleagues got to do. Let's start first with David Canfield, who talked to Nisi Nash Betts. She is a SAG nominee for her role on Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Uh, she was also a Golden Globe nominee for that and won a Critics' Choice Award. David talked to her on Friday before she won the Critics' Choice Award. Hopefully you have seen the speech she gave. If not, please look it up. Uh, she had this sense of um, validation that she talked to David about as well in starting as a comedian and really struggling to get people to take her seriously as a dramatic actress. And uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer story really has gotten her there. She also talked about the way that Dahmer's victims have reacted to the series, which hasn't all necessarily been all that warm. Uh, And she talked about what it means to get this awards recognition at long last, something we're always really happy to hear about. So let's hear David's conversation with SAG Awards nominee Nisi Nash Betts. I wanted to start with where you were a few days ago as of this recording at the Golden Globes. Um, you attended the show as a nominee uh, with your wife, and Ryan Murphy gives you this incredibly beautiful tribute on stage, both to who you are as a person, who you are as an artist. Can you bring me into that moment a little bit, what it felt like? Well, first of all, I call Jessica my husband, not my wife. Husband. There you go. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> uh, and thank you. Uh, and second of all, I had no idea that Ryan was going to mention me in his speech. I mean, he was just like, hey, make sure when, you know, my presentation happens that you're in the room because I don't want you to miss it. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Uh, but I just hmm. thought, you know he was going to speak on himself like everybody else did when they got up there. But he did not use his platform and his time to shine light on others. And I just think it's really indicative of who he is as a person, the selfless part. And I believe that he meant everything he said because his career shows it, that he wanted to shine a light and share the light with people who were in the margins and call them to the forefront. So I felt immense uh, gratitude. I was surprised. I was honored. I felt all the things. Yeah. I think that was true of a lot of people watching and listening as well. Um, One thing he mentioned was that uh, you were told you couldn't or shouldn't marry Jessica because of how it might impact your career. Um, But of course you did. And, you know, thinking about that moment, in the context of being told those things and having to, you know, wrestle with that. I mean, 
how do you look back on that now, especially now that you are this nominee who's having this incredible year in your career? You know, I'm just a person who does what I want to do. <laughs> I've worked long enough. I'm old enough. I've maturated emotionally. I do what I want to do. And I wanted to get married. And I felt like it would have been a disservice for me to live anything other than my truth come what may. So regardless of the outcome, it would have been harder on me to try to hide my life or step away from the life that I wanted than it would be for me to stand flat-footed in it and come what may. Sure, absolutely. Bringing that into your career then, this feeling of someone being someone who does what you want to do, Brian Murphy brings you this part in Dahmer. The title alone indicates something that's going to be quite topical and maybe controversial. Of course, it ended up being that to an extent, if also extremely popular. When you first, when he first told you about it, did you feel reluctant about signing on or was it a really quick yes for you? Well, I never feel reluctant when it comes to Ryan. And it was interesting because just to go back to the previous question, Ryan and I had a conversation mm-hmm. very early on when the world found out about Jessica and I being married. And I told him some of the things that I was told. And he said, as long as I'm alive, you'll have a job. Huh. You don't worry about that. Wow. And that's what the man told me. Now, cut to uh, because we have been uh, so connected that he called and said, hey, I have something that I really want you to do. I said, "Okay." there was no what is it? Let me think about it. Can I read it? I just said, "Okay, you got it. Oh, by the way, what is it? You know, (laughs) (laughs) because I was committed to providing provision for the vision. So if you call me, you need me. I'm pulling up. How can I be of service? And he will forever have me at hello. So what happens then when you do find out (laughs) what it's about? I mean, what was your initial reaction, especially given that level of trust you had with him already? I imagine it was probably pretty exciting if you can trust him and know you're going into something that intense, perhaps. Well, you know, you say yes. I said yes before reading anything. Then you realize, oh, here's all the research material. I'm playing a real person. Okay. And then you realize the weight of it because this woman's voice has gone unheard. And for me, I have to find a place where every character I play and myself intersect Mm. in order for me to ground it. I got to find something that we have in common. And you say, oh, I've been there before. I remember the time that I said this or that and nobody believed me or nobody listened. I understand the point of this pain, but hers went on and on and on. And then not only that, She was not believed. She was told that she was using 911. She was misusing it and that it is supposed to be a resource, not the way she was Mm -hmm. using it. So all of these things. And then when you say, 
this is a real person. So the respect and the honor that you have to have to get it right is now on 10. So it was probably the most difficult job I've ever had to date. Hmm. It's interesting because your performance um, in the series, it feels very much a face of the show's effort to give a voice to the voiceless uh, and to these people who are not being heard. And your performance has this incredible emotional charge. And so when you were saying, you know, you look for where the connection is between you and your characters, I, I immediately just think of the the rawness with which you played her. Um, it felt like you went to somewhere pretty deep. Yeah. And, you know, the tricky thing with going to that place is how do you then find the light? I needed the the balance. And I'm not like Evan, where he could go in and stay in. I'm like, oh, no, I got to get out of here. And mm-hmm. so I had the blessing of being able to shoot Dahmer and Reno 911, the hunt for QAnon at the same time. Wow. <laughs> so I would go from set to set, you know, and the industry was kind, but they definitely told me I had a lane. And mm-hmm. because a lot of times people want to leave you where they met you. And because they met me doing Reno and met me doing the Bernie Mac show and all of these other little fun things, they were like, oh, she's a funny girl. We get it. We know what you do. But I always believed that I could do more. And I always believed that because I never wanted to be funny. Can we start there? We can We can absolutely start there. I never thought it was anything to, to aspire to. Because I got in trouble for being funny. I got put on punishment. I got pinched in church. You know, I had talks too much on my report card because I was always cracking jokes and was a class clown. So I didn't know that comedy was a gift. I wanted to be a serious actress. But you Mm -hmm. get in where you fit in. So I started where I was the strongest. And that's where people said, you stay there. And I said, but I don't want to. I want to go over Mm -hmm. there with those other kids. And to be able to do both of these jobs simultaneously speaks to the fact that I knew I was right. Hmm. I knew I was a multi-hyphenate. And all you need is one person to see you how you see yourself and you can get something going. Those are about two, (laughs) in terms of extremes, Reno 911 and Dahmer are, I feel like, as far as you can get on comedy and drama, which, so yeah, I completely agree with you. That definitely proves you right. Did it feel weird going back and forth at all? Or was it, like you said, like you kind of needed that? No, I needed it. It didn't feel weird at all. I needed it. I needed to find my light. I needed it. I needed to catch a break. And I'm grateful for my better half because on days when, you know, it was extremely hard for me, she was there to, you know, for me now, the exchange was providing provision for the vision. Hmm. You know, so it definitely served me well. And then my real life daughter played my daughter in Dahmer. And children are, they just are so carefree. You know, and so even on some of my hard days when she was on set, it was like, hey, mom, you want to do this quick TikTok? I'm like, girl, no, I don't. 
<laughs> I'm over here trying to get my character together, but I I I loved the lightness of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like it's the kind of project where, um, on the one hand, you do have to kind of dig into just the awfulness of the story, frankly, and then what she went through. And on the other hand, do find that lightness. So I'm curious on the other end of it, on the end of having to really, you know, go to a certain place, explore these really dark themes. What did that process look like for you? Um, and, And how did that inform your performance? You know, I just kept trying to focus on Glenda's fear, her pain, and then her rage. That's where I tried to live with it. Fear, pain, rage. And what does that look like? And sometimes it's loud and sometimes you can hear a pin drop. It just depends on where it catches you on that day and at that time. So I just tried to be present to every moment. You got to think about what happened before this, what's about to happen after this. How long have you been in this space? When have you absolutely had it? When are, have you, when, at what point in the story are you the most fearful? You just have to continue to ask the questions and then search your instrument to express them. Hmm. Um, in terms of you realizing you needed to find that lightness, I'm curious how you found working on When They See Us before this, uh, which I thought you were also really powerful in that. Um, it's another really dark story. Um, and it had to have been one of the first times, at least, you were in a project of that intensity. Yeah, When They See Us was hard because those are children. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, that 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 was that was tough. You know, it was the only job I had been on up until that point that had provided crisis counselors for you. Mm. You know, because you would get off work at the end of the day, and baby, if tequila didn't get it, you had to go on and call that hotline. Right. You know what I mean? And get somebody to talk you down off the ledge, and it's brutal. You know, and I always say, if people could live that sort of trauma, we owe it to them to bear witness. Mm. Oh, I can't watch this. It's, it's going to make me sad. I can't watch that. It's going to be too scary. I don't want to look at this. It's going to creep me out. What about the people who had to live it? Mm. Where is your humanity in supporting them? Mm. It brings up an interesting question uh, as a comedic actor, someone who came in as a comedic actor uh, into the industry, um, when you do these parts and they do take a lot out of you, there's that question of, I suppose, like, what do you get out of it beyond that fulfillment? And it does sound like with both of these projects, especially there's a certain social value for you in bringing these characters to the screen and these stories. I love my job. People say, do you prefer comedy or drama? And I say, I prefer work. Hmm. And in the preferring of the work, I just want to be present. I want to make people feel. I want to I want to master storytelling so people feel like they know exactly what people are thinking and experiencing. That's the that's the goal. Yeah. 
this is definitely a show that makes people feel. Um, it's it's uncomfortable at times. And as the show got so popular, I'm curious just kind of how you took it, how you took conversations, um, and even to an extent how you took criticism. I know some family members of, of the victims have spoken out against the show, and there's been this balance. Uh, and for you as an actor, what it's like to be in the middle of that when it's just so much conversation. Um, I think conversation is good. I think it invites a dialogue, but I also think that were it not for this project, there are so many people who just would have been nameless and faceless. Because while everybody knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was and what he did, have you ever heard the name Glenda Cleveland before this? I have not. Okay. So that's my point. Yep. What about her? What about her her? having her story told or her side of things told. How about it's not just, oh, it's a situation where, you know, he was killing, you know, these types of people. Well, who were the people? Who, who, who Let's talk about the families and unpack how it affected them. You know, so the conversation is, uh, is all right. Because at the end of the day, we're standing in the light of the truth being told. You don't have to like it, but it wasn't a lie. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The other show you have going on right now, uh, Rookie Feds, um, also a little bit lighter, um, but also it it made me think of what you were saying with Dahmer and Reno a little bit because it's that kind of star vehicle that makes me very excited for you in that it's a technically a dramatic series, but to me it feels like they pretty naturally lean into the fact that you are, like it or not, a very funny person. Uh, Did you find that as you went into the show? 
Well, we talked about it from the beginning. They wanted that thread. They wanted someone who could do both. And then at one point, the show was, you know, because of scheduling and timing, looked like it may have gone away. And I was like, well, who are you going to get? If it's not going to be me, who is it? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because people who can make you laugh can make you cry, but the reverse is not always true. Yes. So who who who's left? Number one, who's available? Number two, you know what I mean? Do they have a conflict? What what's who's on your short list? Cause if you want all the good juju that I bring, we gotta figure out how to make this work. And we did. So what how did they figure it out? Um, I don't know. How <laughs> did they figure it out? And then the script came. Yeah. The one mandate that I had was, are you open to partnership? Because I don't want to be an executive producer in title only. Right. I'm very hands-on. And if you can rock with that, let's do it. If it's not your jam, I understand. So it's interesting because this is a network show. And there are obviously, you know, someone like me will have, you know, preconceived notions of how much you can be a creative partner on a network show. So how has your experience been in that regard? Oh, I love it. I love it so much, you know. Um, I'm having a good time over here, you know, because just like, you know, my character that I play in Dahmer, you know, you just want to be heard and know that your thoughts and your opinions have value. And I definitely have that with... um, Terrence Winter and Alexi Hawley over here. I definitely have that. So, you know what I mean? And my character, she's sassy. She's fun. She's an equal opportunity lover. She dates men and women. Mm-hmm. And she's in her second act. And I love it so much. Um, being a SAG nominee, particularly, uh, it's your first SAG nomination. This obviously comes from your peers in this industry, uh, appears we're at various levels uh, in this industry. Um, you've obviously been Emmy nominated, Golden Globe nominated, but I, I am curious what that specific kind of recognition means to you at this point in your career in which you were in your own next act, perhaps. Man, this SAG award is the best of the <laughs> best. You know what I mean? Because that's your people. Mm-hmm. That's people who know what auditioning look like, sleeping on people's couches look like, unpacking the work looks like. They know it. They know the tears that they cried when things didn't go the way they thought it should go. This got canceled. That didn't get picked up. Like, the whole struggle, you know, and to get that nomination from that group, I think it's the most special of them all. It makes me think, too, about what you were saying earlier, um, coming into this industry with a lane that the industry puts you in, and you're recognized for really the opposite kind of role from what the industry put you in. Um, That also feels like a real statement about you kind of defying what they put you in. That's right. I proved it to them, and I know I did. But more importantly, I proved it to myself. I proved to myself that the dream that God stamped on the canvas of my imagination could manifest. So what, what's next in this career for you to prove to yourself that perhaps you haven't gotten the chance to yet? I think maybe up next I want to be a movie star. I love that. Why not? You were in a room full of them just a few days ago. <laughs> Honey, 
Maybe that's what I want to do next. I think I'd like to see that. Listen, from your mouth to God's ear. From this podcast. Thank God. God. <laughs> so now let's hear from Richard Lawson, who talked to Carrie Condon. She's been working with the Banshees of Sharon writer and director Martin McDonough since they were doing theater together. Uh, and she has this huge standout part in a cast that is full of standout parts in the Banshees of Sharon. She's been nominated at the Golden Globes, the Critics' Choice Awards. Uh, she's been recognized by a lot of critics as a huge breakout star from this season. Um, and she talks to Richard about basically how the Banshees of Sharon has changed her career entirely. But then she also talks about the horse that changed her life uh, that she met on the set of the HBO series Luck. Uh, she's someone who maybe seems like an overnight success if you see her in Banshees, but she's been working a long time and, and really talked to Richard about the scope of, of the journey that got her to this point um, with this hugely acclaimed role in Banshees. Uh, so let's hear Richard's conversation with Carrie Condon. Well, Carrie Condon, we're so happy to have you on the line. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. You know, this is my first podcast. That can't be right, really? Yeah, I really didn't want to do any podcasts and it's gas because I love listening to them. I live by myself and I find, you know, some evenings I just love listening to podcasts. It feels like you have company or something, but like, you know, it's not like a TV or it's a screen or whatever. But I don't know. I was a bit nervous about running my mouth off free reign and what the hell could come out. But <laughs> apparently they think I might be capable of not being a crazy person on a podcast. And we have a very capable editor. So <laughs> if anything should go awry, we can fix it in post, as they say. Um well, first off, Carrie, I want to say congrats on all of the awards success thus far of the Banshees of Inisharan and your performance. What has that been like? I mean, that must be a kind of wild experience. It is, of course, because I've been acting for, you know, a very long time, um, 24 years professionally, actually. And and so, like, it kind of got to the point where I, I just stopped thinking about what happens after a film, you know, when it comes out. Or, like, I really was just about, are you just doing the acting part is all I was concerned with. And after mid the day I'm done, my mind has moved on, like it's gone. And I just let it go. So, and I've enjoyed that too. It's kept it like, it's really the only reason I love this job is doing the acting part. So this is all very new to me, this whole like, like being in something that not only is like critically acclaimed, but that a lot of people are seeing, you know, like um, even though I've worked with really great directors before, not everybody saw the things and they didn't hate. Like it's it's almost like there's an, an element of luck. I think we have to admit it's like the stars align and it's timing and it's it's just so many things. And so it's really, really great to be a part of it. But when you're filming something like Banshees, I would imagine actually on set, no one is like, ooh, that was the Oscar scene, right? Like, you have to put that far out of mind. 100%. To be honest with you, like, you know, I knew because it was Martin and Martin had done three billboards that for sure directors and, and actors were going to watch it, you know, just out of curiosity. I knew that. I didn't, you know, know that the general public were going to like it. Like, who knows what their taste is at what at given time. So, but then if I thought about like director wise, who was going to watch it, like I got, would get very like, oh my God. So I immediately decided it's just me and Martin. Like I only need to concentrate on Martin and his notes 
And it's like we're doing a play. It's like all the jobs we had done before together. It's a play. Who knows who's going to come and see it? But really, is it just your standard and me getting to that standard and doing it the way that you want me to do it in the way that I think is my forte? And so I kept it like that. I didn't think beyond how, well, like, who was going to watch it ever. One of your first big jobs was in The Lieutenant of Inishmore, right? Which uh, the McDonough's play. What has it been like to have such a constant collaborator through your career? I mean, I would imagine he's something of a become something of a touchstone for you as you you make your way through um, this very strange business. Yeah, and you know, like the parts came with big gaps in between, like perfect moments in my life, and I needed them. But Lieutenant was amazing because I hadn't gone to drama school. I didn't have the money for drama school, and so. I I learned so much doing that play because it was all a rehearsal period and I learned a lot about, you know, there's a lot of gags and timing of comedy because you hear the audience and if you pause like a second too much, you've lost the laugh and you've lost. So I learned an awful lot about that and I learned a lot about with Martin, you know, he's on you with the notes every night, like that'd be a critique of your performance and you need to do this and that. And so you need to, even if you've been doing the play for like a year, you still got to refer to the original notes and go, OK, let me not lose the performance. Like, I don't want to get lazy. I have to keep doing it in the way that we established was the best way. So there was a kind of a work ethic that I learned and all sorts of things. So that's what made like working with him now is just kind of it's very easy. I'm just very used to it. And is there any major adjustment because this is a film versus a, a stage play? I thought that too, you know, I wondered, would there be a bit of a difference? And I'd done like three billboards with him, but that was pure tiny, that part, really. So I couldn't really get the lay of the land with that, of how, you know, how he was different with the, I would, um, uh, I'd been a director of film or at the theatre, but it didn't, it wasn't at all. It was totally Vagalic based on my acting. It was the very same as if it was a play, now, he had been telling me he had done it when he was doing his storyboards and things like that. So I knew he was preparing his shots and stuff, but it was none of my, he never made it my concern and it was not was none of my concern. I felt like it not, that was nothing to do with me, really. It was all about like just the acting part and the feeling it and the rhythm of the lines and all those theatre-based notes and blocking and things like that. But I actually kind of loved the opportunity to come to it going, oh, well, like I've done loads of films and I've done loads of TV shows and I've worked with really, I worked with Michael Mann, David Fincher, like a really great directors. And I learned stuff from them that I brought to this. So it was nice for me to be able to come to Martin and go, well, these are things that I learned when I wasn't working with you. Like we've both kind of done a lot in between and so I asked for certain things that I had learned were a good idea and he did them for me too. Well that's great I mean it kind of the collaboration can evolve the more experience you both have. Yes Um, yeah you know in speaking of that evolution I know people who followed Martin's career you know Banshees along with Hangman the which was on Broadway recently it's being looked at by some as his return to Ireland because his last couple films were set in the United States so I'm curious from your perspective as an Irish person, what does Martin McDonough mean to Irish people? I have a sense of how he plays in the US, you know, obviously, but I'm curious to hear that perspective on it. Well, I don't know. Do you know, you, you know yourself, like there's, a, you know, some people love you and some people hate you and you can't please all the people all the time. But I do know that it was this theatre company in Galway, Druid Theatre Company and the artistic director, Gary Hines, 
was the first person to get Martin's plays at the very beginning of his career. He sent them off to loads of different theatre companies. This trilogy, she was the one who said, these are brilliant, I'm going to put these on. And so it was Gary's kind of recognition of Martin's talent that sort of started the whole ball rolling for him. Um, And that's an Irish, very small, brilliant theatre company. And in general, like, I suppose there's a fondness for, for me with the Irish stuff because I feel like, you know, he's really good at the the dialogue. I feel like the dialogue really is like the way a lot of people talk in Ireland. And I think, um, I, I think he has a fondness. I don't think it's like can be seen in a way of like, oh, you're making a joke out of people or whatever. Like, because all the characters are so, so like well written. They're not one note. No one's ever really like one note. Everybody has like different layers to them. And, and I believe it's like that in all these plays. The Beauty Queen of Leenan is like an amazing play. Two women roles, two Irish women. And I think to myself, Joe Martin doesn't have any sisters. So how the fuck did he come up with the, <laughs> what's it, the mother-daughter dynamic? It was fascinating. Not only had he no sisters, he'd no girlfriend till he was fucking well in his 20s. So he'd no touchstone of like a woman, a 40-year-old woman. Yet it's so... Brilliant. I think something that really strikes me about Banshees is it kind of relates to what you said, which is like, it's a comedy in parts, you know, there are these funny prickly characters who are doing outsized things, but he always, it always then grounds itself with some real humanity. Um, And I think that the character Siobhan is a huge part of that. Obviously she's on, on a journey of her own, but also watching as these two men struggle against each other. Um, how did you approach Siobhan as a character and, and what her arc was going to be? Because you could play the outright comedy of it. You could play just the drama of it. But I think you found the right the right balance in between. Uh, thanks a million. I'm sure that was Martin helping me as well. You know, like he very much knows what he wants, sort of. But, um, I, I, you know, I, th- that was one thing that was tricky for me in the beginning was I was definitely leaning into the sadness of, the, of her more. And I remember one day, it was like our second day filming, we, we we rehearsed, we just did me and Colin one of the scenes and Martin got real angry. He was like, why is it so sad? It can't be this sad so soon. Like, it's like, it can't be this sad. And and I, I was just something, I, I was so funny. I remember going, Jesus, buddy, relax. We'll do it again and I'll take it up a notch. And we all, you know, went on and had a great day ultimately. But it was just something that I paid attention to. I was like, okay, Kerry, like, you got to watch that. There has to be like a bit of a, you can't just be this sad all the time. Do you know, um, you can get carried away with that. So then, so then the comedy stuff, I suppose, was just in the way it was written. But I like, I love the way, you know, she was a learned person as well. Like, if you think about it, she was quite a feminist character. Do you know, and she didn't need everyone to know she was smart either. And she did, she was kind of a loner. And there was just such a strength to Siobhan that was so admirable, I felt. Yeah, she's, uh, you, you root for her to get out off the island, but also you feel sad that she leaves. You know, it's it's a combination of any time you, you strike out and, and leave home. Um, do you ever let yourself imagine, like, what happens to her after the credits roll? Like, is she okay? Does she stay there? Does she come back? I know. Do you know what's gas? Like, I, I did think about, do you know when Dominic dies and, and Porig writes back to Siobhan and he says, you know, not much news here or whatever, but he says, 
O'Dom, he lets her know Dominic was found drowned in the lake. I just wonder when she gets that message, you know, like the kind yeah. of the gut feeling of, oh, sweet fuck. And she'll be like, I, she'll remember that talking to him by the river or by the lake. And Marilyn was like, yeah, but I don't think she'd be like, you know, sad for the rest of her life because of that or whatever, guilty or whatever. But I was like, yeah, but you don't know, you see, like, you know, like, suicide or things like that, like they really do affect the people that are left dealing them and they really do stay with you forever. It's not that you're stuck in it forever, but of course it would be in her mind forever that moment. And she was kind of deep person. So I don't think Siobhan was the type to just go, oh, that's sad about Dominic and skip off. I think it would have added a little layer of life to her, I suppose. But I do like to think she might have had a romance. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, now, you're someone who also has left home, you live abroad, uh, or you work a lot abroad. Um, what is your relationship with your hometown or your home country like these days? Well, I think I can really appreciate it, you know, when you go away and you come back, like, you know, you just really appreciate it more than when you were there. It's just so beautiful, Ireland. It's just so beautiful. It's like, oh, sometimes it feels like something from Lord of the Rings or something. It's so beautiful. Crystals in the, you know, and and the, it's so clean. And there's so, people in Ireland are real conscious of the environment too. Kind of breaks my heart, to be honest. And I go back and they're real, like, strict about the recycling and and the, everything about the environment. And then I'm like, lads, I hate to say it yet, but in America, they're not strict. And America's like a, so much bigger than Ireland. Um, but anyway, sure. So we we have to try. <laughs> yes. Um, and hopefully the bigger countries will try a bit more too. And um, but I I love going back to Ireland and I love acting in my own accent as well. Of course, it's such a welcome treat. It's like another one less thing to do and it's one less thing to work on. Um, but at the same time, do you know, like I always felt from a very young age, I might. Dad used to give me a nickname even. I just always wanted to leave home and I always wanted to go to America and be an actress. I just was always, I kind of always knew like my destiny, like before I was even, you know, old enough to know about your destiny or whatever. I always wanted to travel and and I've always liked to think that I'm kind of like a worldly person, but yet being extremely proud of being Irish because also, you know, I do appreciate my education now when I'm traveling too because it was free and I got a really amazing education. The Irish education system is so good and it's free for everybody. So all those things, you know, I didn't appreciate them. And I look back now and I'm like, Christ almighty, Ireland seems like a dreamland. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I was joking to friends after seeing the movie for a second time. And I said, that bar with the table outside and the view, like I would pay $30 for a pint to sit there. That looks, but they're so miserable there. You know, like it's just well, a funny. Well, it is cold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. the thing, you know, nowhere is that, that's, there is heaviness to Ireland too, of course. And, and, and 
And there's a history, an awful sad history that came before us that makes us who we are very strong. But at the same time, of course, extremely sad. We were filming in one of the islands and in Ackle Island, there's this little part of the island that's this deserted village. And it was in all these people were dying in the famine and they all left and all their, their houses, the, the stones are still there. So you walk in and like it's all overgrown or whatever, but the actual stones that they put with their hands there and you're thinking, oh my God, the sadness that must have been here. Do you know, people dying yeah. hunger and just like getting on these ships, you know, like... It's mad when you think about your the past. We're such wusses now. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, exactly. aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I grew up in a part of Boston that had a lot of Irish immigrants, and so the Irish accent I just always heard as a kid from all my neighbors, and I, they had the bumper stickers that said twenty six plus six equals one, and you know all that stuff. But my <laughs> my parents would always say, you know, they left for a reason. There was some, you know, something brought them here, and and I think yeah, that's that's a big part of the Irish story in some ways. Yeah, and also there's great opportunity in America, you know, in terms of like success and global success and things like that, and. Um, you know, that structure still exists um, of leaving. But of course, now is where you can go home on a flight. There are times, of course, I won't lie, Thanksgiving here or like the Super Bowl here and I would have been on my own and I think to myself, ah, Christ, I would have loved to have gotten in the car and gone home for the weekend, just drive a few sure. hours to see my brothers and my sisters or whatever. Um, that's been kind of shitty, but... But now, if it was easy, yeah. everybody'd be doing it. Right, exactly, exactly. So you've had this fascinating career between film, television, theater, different accents, different personalities, different you know people entirely. Um, I was listening to an interview with the actor Andrea Riseborough recently, and she said that she's never really done a project where she speaks in her own accent or kind of in, feels like she's playing something close to yourself. How do you feel about the people you've played over the years? Like, is there a lot of you still in those roles or do you completely transform when you're on set? Uh, no, I think there's always a bit of me, to be honest with you, or if not a bit of me, a bit of people I know you know, likes my sisters or people like kind of friends and things like that, traits and different friends and stuff. Um, and I don't think I necessarily go about like looking for those things and curating it. So it kind of happens kind of naturally a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm sure I, I kind of would be nervous to taking on parts like like Elvis and, and Anna Dharma's the blonde role that like, because I feel like, oh God, like they, Christ, you need balls for that because you're really like, People have seen that person. So it's very like there's so much I like I love the freedom of it being like something you create and it's something you um make up or whatever. Um but I, I like Andrew's gas, you mentioned Andrea. Me and her were talking the other day. We did this workshop about twenty years ago, the two of us, for this possible movie. And every time we see each other over the years, we'd always be like, hi, hi, do me like we did this thing. So it's just great seeing her and I, do you know, like we've been at it for quite a long time. So it's nice when someone you met years and years ago is still here and doing well, both of us too. Now, um, I hope this isn't uh, an overreach, but you recently had a birthday, a significant birthday that I'm facing in a couple months. Um and I'm curious, like, how do you view, like, how do you look at, like, the the future ahead? Like, is there stuff you want to do that you haven't been able to do before? Like, do you have a plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? I don't have a plan at all, really, because, you know, I think to myself, 
I get, you know, you don't know when you're going to die. So I'd be careful of those plans and just be more in the moment, you know, or it's hard to say that, but, you know, obviously you don't want to have like so little money that you're in the moment for like a week and then you're broke. But, but, you know, I don't think that far ahead. I will say life begins at 40, my father said to me. And so far he's fecking true, I tell you. It's been like, it's been <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, that's um, good to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and it's really lovely growing up when when you learn more about yourself and you're you're more confident and you're more like um life gets easier. I'm like, if I have to like lose whatever the standard of beauty that we're all ridiculous about, if I have to lose that for like mental stability, I'll take it, man. Like, has the mental stability in your twenties is very difficult. Twenties are so difficult. Um, I pity anyone, to be honest, in their 20s. So in terms of work, though, no, like I do think it, it's been really nice um, not having the success be the driving force of my career and really just doing the roles because I still feel that way. I'm like, oh, there's loads of directors or actors I'd love to work with. I think kind of in that regard, because I don't know what's going to come to me at what given time. And um, but then also, you know, I would I, I I've have horses and I have a farm and like I really feel like in so much of my happiness is 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 that you know what I mean and I don't want to put my happiness into me as an actress because it's just it's just like a recipe for disaster so like I you know hopefully I'm really hoping that I'll get great parts and I'll make loads of money and I can buy loads of hay and I can, you know, do up my farm and paint the wooden fences. And I want to adopt a lot of horses and dogs. And, you know, I keep thinking, God, imagine if I had like Tom Cruise money, like how big my farm would be, be like so many animals. And so I think like, oh, if I died and I had like, you know, made the, all these cute little souls all their lives really lovely. Um, and because of this talent that I have and that this thing that I love to do and I wanted to do my whole life, if that, the offset of that was all these cute little animals and people I met in my life did well out of it too. Like, wouldn't that be brilliant? That sort of drives me. Some people buy a yacht, you'll buy more hay. I think yeah. <laughs> that's a good... Uh... You know, for Christmas, I spent a grand on hay and I was like, oh man, <laughs> it felt great. Have you noticed, I mean, you know, so Banshee's premiered at the Venice Film Festival uh, to great acclaim, obviously, and it's been having a great run since then. Have you noticed already like different kind of offers coming in because based on that, that kind of high profile work that you have, uh, you know, that's probably going to be still in the conversation in a couple months time? Apparently so. I mean, so they say, and I'm taking their word in terms of like, this does help your career. Because uh, sometimes I go, well, it's fucking better because I'm bloody, I'm, I'm ready to be hooked up to a drip. But I, you know, I have to trust people who've, who've experienced their fields and there's a reason you hire people and stuff. And in terms of like, I will say not to be bloody greedy, but come on, I'm a single woman. Yeah, my price has gone up and thank fuck it's gone up, to be honest with you. So apparently Jets up and Jack Nicholson said, I can't quote him exact now, but he said something like, not to me, but he, he said around the time he was at the Oscars. So go, this is the part where you sit back and watch your price go up. And I was like, oh, I love the sound of that. That <laughs> does sound nice. <laughs> um, well, as someone who's been a fan of yours since uh, the Rome days, um, a show that I really loved, um, it's been really fun to watch as you maneuver this weird 
industry and, and so successfully. Um, and so thank you for your time today. And again, congrats on everything. Really, uh, it's well-deserved. Thanks a million. I can't believe you watched Rome. God, that was so long ago. It feels like a different life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was kind of in this weird part of television history where we were just figuring out like how to do those big prestige TV yeah. shows. And I think Rome was kind of one of the big test cases for that. It was. It was raining money on that job. I had per diem under my mattress. I had so much per diem. It was a great time. It was very, it was exactly like the Roman times. A very opulent, beautiful time. And a great, you know, great experience for me as well doing the um the English accent and the naked scenes too. I was really glad I did those. It made me really like compartmentalize my body and who I am and then my as an actor. Um, so I thought that was a really good thing to learn very early on. Well, if anyone listen has not watched Rome, go back and do it. It's only two seasons, but it's well, well worth a watch. Um, in the meantime, Carrie, thanks again. And, uh, you know, we'll see you probably in a couple months uh, in, at, the Dol- <laughs> at the Dolby Theatre. <laughs> Thanks a million, very much. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular roundtable conversation. A lot to catch up on at this point in award season. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at HWD, find us at VanityFair.com, and find us on Twitter on our own. I am at Katie Rich, David is at David Canfield 97 and Richard is at Rylaws. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.